I did get a chance to say hello to Pauline, so good morning Pauline, and thank you for the invite to be here this morning. I think it was just before Christmas that Pauline uh, gave me a call and, um, and she said a, a slot's come up, and um, you know, quite suddenly, and she said I've tried absolutely everybody I normally invite and none of them can make it, so can you make it, are you free? And uh, it was slightly nicer than that, but, uh, but with, a, with a challenge like that I'm really pleased to be here and be back at South Green again. Um, I think um, I've only actually, um, I've, I've preached a few times um, at Billericay Baptist, not, not too many. The last time I did was at the beginning of December at, um, at Sunnybee Chapel. And, um, and I was talking to Kim afterwards and um, asking for some feedback. And she said, uh, it, was, it was good, she said, it was a, it was a little dry, a little dry. And I, and I can't help it because when I get into studying scripture, I just love getting into a bit of biblical history. I love getting into the meaning of the words and even with the apps you can get these days and on computer and the internet, you can look up the actual the Greek or the Hebrew meaning of the words and it really gives you an insight into kind of what Paul was meaning in this instance, you know, when he wrote what he did. Um, and I really love it and, and, and I, I really enjoy getting into the, the theology as well and, and trying to be quite precise on the theology. But anyway, so in, in a sort of slightly lighter uh, bit, I thought I'd start with a quick uh, quiz uh, to test your biblical knowledge. And feel free to just think amongst yourselves or to talk to the people beside you. But thinking back to the very beginning of Genesis, do you all know what time did God create Adam? What time did God create Adam? And the answer is a little before Eve. Okay, I'll try another one on you. You get the sense of this quiz now. How long did Cain hate his brother? as long as he was able. Okay. All right. Why didn't, they play, why didn't they play cards on the ark? Because Noah was always standing on the deck. Okay, and who was the first tennis player in the Bible? We've heard a lot about Andy Murray this week, but who was the first tennis player in the Bible? The answer is Joseph, because he served in Pharaoh's court. There you go. I thought they were worth sharing. Now that's my difficult bit out of the way. Let's uh, study some scripture. Okay. So what, what I'm going to do this morning, I'll give you um, uh, just a quick outline now. So I'll, we'll start by thinking about the book of Galatians and who Paul was writing to, and perhaps more importantly, why he was writing to them. Um, and then we'll look at the passage in a little bit of detail. And um, even though the, um, the verse on faithfulness is verse uh, 20 that contains the word faithfulness, which is the essential part of the passage, is in verse 22. I thought it was important to start at 13, where Norman uh, started, and then take us through to the very end um, of the chapter. Uh, because to understand faithfulness as a fruit of the Spirit, we need to understand what is not a fruit of the Spirit, and it puts it in the context of works of the flesh and, um, and, and the fruit of the Spirit. And then we'll look at faithfulness itself. Okay. So with respect to the book of Galatians, um, Paul was um, apparently either writing to, the, um, the, there was a, a Roman province, which was quite a large Roman province, uh, kind of like the area of what is modern day Turkey in Asia Minor. So he could have been writing generally to that whole area, or more than likely he was um, writing to the, what, the, the people, the Galatians, um, and, um, and they were a, a Celtic people in the north of that a Roman province. And if that's the case, then he probably was writing, um, he probably planted the church in his second or third missionary journey 
um, uh, which is detailed in Acts 18 to 20. So if you want to, you know, look at those missionary journeys, that's Acts 18 to 20. Um, and in that case, apparently, if you then do the timeline, he, the book of Galatians was probably written around AD 55. So you know, quite soon after um, Jesus' death and resurrection. And the, the context in which the book was written is that um, the, the church, after, soon after the Galatian church was established, um, agitators came into the church and they were discrediting Paul's teaching and, and talking against Paul and preaching a false gospel. Um, and um, they were um, uh, requiring the Gentile converts to Christianity to come under the law, even including things like um, the men being circumcised, like um, uh, the, the, Jew, uh, the Jews had to be circumcised. So the Galatians were in danger of overturning the true gospel, and there was dissension in the church. So Paul was writing to the Galatian church, kind of admonishing them, really, um, and um, uh, justifying uh, the true gospel and, and, the, and him as, a, as an apostle to be able to um, tell the truth to them and, and outline his authority, underline his authority to teach it and the fact that that authority came from God. And in addition to, what, to, to those things as well, the, lots of the content of Galatians um, is, um, goes into what it means to live um, a meaningful life um, as a follower of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's what the passage today focuses on. So let's take a look in a bit more detail at the passage itself. Um, if you've got a Bible, that's great. If not, I'll keep referring back to um, the text itself. So starting, um, starting in verse 13, it says, um, For you were called to freedom, brothers. And, um, you know, obviously under Christ, you know, we are free from the law. Now, we're not so free that we can completely discard uh, and disregard the law. We're not entirely devoid of any laws. There's a, a, an old heresy called antinomianism, which basically says you can just ignore the law. You know, you can live as you want. You're saved, so because you're saved, you can live as you want. Anti is against, and, and nomos is, refers to the law. So antinomianism, people just decided to live willy-nilly, didn't matter. They didn't have to try and do anything at all. And, um, and, and that's, you know, that's not a good, good way to live because we can't or we shouldn't continue to live in sin regardless knowing the difference between right and wrong. But neither, of course, are we suddenly made perfect uh, when we're saved. We know that life is more difficult than that. We're counted as perfect and righteous in God's um, eyes because of Jesus' perfect life and because of his redeeming death on the cross. But we do need to be careful. Because in verse 13, at the end of that uh, sentence, it also says that uh, freedom for, from the law can be an opportunity for the flesh or the sinful nature. Now, that term um, flesh or desires of the flesh, in, in my translation, I'm using the English Standard Version, um, it, it, all the way through the passage it, passage, it talks about flesh, desires of the flesh, and works of the flesh. And often... People think that refers to, or we, we think that refers automatically to physical or sexual um, desires and, and sexual sins, and, and very often it can. And, and indeed, many of the examples that, uh, that we saw later in the passage do refer to sins of that nature. However, in the New Testament, there are two words that are uh, used, uh, translated um, flesh in English, and, um, and they are soma and sarx. And we're familiar with the word soma, 
um, because we import it directly into English in some words. So um, psychosomatic illnesses relate to um, ailments which are physical ailments, ailments of the body, the soma, that are caused by uh, mental um, issues like stress or internal conflict. So that's the word soma. So the word soma refers almost entirely specifically to the human physical body, the biological physical being. But the word sarks, which is used here, that, that is sometimes also used to mean um, to have a physical uh, dimension. So, for example, in John 1.14, when he, he's talking about Jesus, and he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that is the word sarks. So, they, you know, he became physical and dwelt amongst us. But when I was researching this passage, I learned that when the word sarks, which is what is used here, when it talks about the flesh, when that's used in conjunction, in opposition to the, the spirit, or, or the pneuma, then the word sarks almost exclusively refers to the fallen nature of, of humanity, you know, the, the, uh, where, the fact where you know, we're a fallen being you know, after um, uh, you know, the Garden of Eden. So when we're instructed in verse 16 to walk by the Spirit so we, will not, so we won't gratify the desires of the flesh, that explains why the list that we see later on is much broader than simply sexual sin. It's a much broader um, list. And I'll read that verse 19 again. Or 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So it's not only physical or sensual desires, but these are the general desires of our fallen nature which emanate from our mind, and our heart and, and our mouths. It's, uh, it's the whole person, our whole sinful nature. And it clearly it's not an exhaustive list either. You know, we do like lists and want to know, you know, what do we do and don't do and where can we improve? But, um, but Paul ends the list by saying, you know, and things like these. So we, these are just examples of the kind of things we recognise. So I think we generally know when we're acting uh, wrongly or with the desires of the flesh and acting out the works of the flesh. I think they're quite plain and simple. But I was reflecting on, well, what, what maybe do these things look like in this day and age? What might they mean to us today? And I, th- and I thought, well, let's just consider a few examples. And, um, and I'll use the collective term by saying we and us as I go through this. Um, but for example, sexual immorality and sin. You know, it's easy, perhaps, to act on uh, an impulse of an impure thought that can lead to, to sinful acts, perhaps uh, most seriously in adultery, but even perhaps in a social situation by thinking about or flirting with um, other people in a way that might not be honouring to your partner or your husband and wife. Or perhaps these days, more frequently, by looking at pornography, which is rife in society today. And we Christians do this, according to studies, just as much as the general population, including leaders of the church. It's not uncommon. 
I remember our youngest son coming home from school and, and talking to him, and he was in junior school at the time, and we maybe don't see and feel this so much, um, uh, because we don't talk about it so much. But he shared with me that from a very young age, uh, children with uh, mobile phones you know, access pornography and, and show it to their friends at school. And this may be shocking to some of us, but it's happened in our school today. And it happens with adults too. When I was um, a young man, um, I would occasionally buy what is now called girly magazines. And, um, but they weren't what was now what you can now get on a mobile phone or access through the internet. You had to physically go somewhere, and it was very embarrassing, and you didn't do it very often because you had to go into a shop and give it to a lady, you know, purchase it. I'm not very, you know, that's just what I did. Nowadays, children can access these things much more readily, um, and, and so it's much more of a temptation uh, for many people. Fits of anger acting on an angry thought um, or not controlling our mouths perhaps perhaps being in a car and gesticulating or even swearing at people on the street or perhaps completely losing yourself in a fit of anger uh, or becoming surprisingly angry uh, you know, with your children I can uh, recognise that in myself um, jealousy and envy perhaps talking about others behind their backs including passive-aggressive jealousy and envy, whereby you say, you know, so-and-so is a really lovely person and they do lots of great things, but, you know, they also do that or they don't do that um, quite so well. Perhaps at work, feeling we deserve promotion or recognition uh, that other people are getting. Perhaps assuming they all have it so very easy, whereas we work so incredibly hard and don't get the recognition that we deserve. And this is simply standing in judgment, essentially, of what God has given us and not being satisfied with the blessings he gives us in our lives. Idolatry. I guess not many of us have um, idols of wood and stone at home anymore, but um, perhaps, you know, hoarding things, um, perhaps buying expensive things for ourselves where we could be doing better things with our money, with that we, you know, we don't really need those things. Perhaps being tight with our money and not being generous where we know we should be generous perhaps shortchanging the church in our giving when we know we have the means to tithe but we don't do so and thinking of lots of reasons why you know, we have to live the way we do and, uh, and, and don't live in a different way drunkenness, this one speaks for itself and it's, it's uh, Jesus didn't seem to mind drinking wine that seems to be biblical but it's very easy if you go to the pub or parties to, um, to get past the point of control or rationality and when we do all these things we're not walking in the spirit we're acting out works of the flesh now at the end of verse 21 um, after it says it goes through that list and says and things like these it says I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God now that is quite a categoric statement those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God it's a categoric statement you do this you won't inherit that um, and, and clearly that's potentially you know as I say a, a catastrophic um, statement for, for most of us here or all of us here I would say um, I mean, uh, I'll give one other sort of recent personal um, example of sort of one of my children who I love 
with all my heart. Um, he and I love being with him. And he's at, he, when he's not with us, when he's at university, I miss him incredibly. But when he's with us, he drives me insane. And he's messy and la- in a way that I'm not, and loud. And he, I guess he's just a student. Um, and um, I, for he, it was his 21st birthday recently. And I said, oh, well, I'll, Kim and I decided we'll buy him a suit for his birthday. And it was just me and him, and we were going to have some me and him time. It was over Christmas. We went to Chelmsford for the day. And whatever, I don't know what happened, but a number of things happened. And he just made me incredibly frustrated. And I just became angry with him and shared that with him in a way that wasn't very Christian. Uh, I have to say, and, and to be honest, it, it, it sounds funny when I say it like that, but it, it coloured the whole day. We came back from Chelmsford early, and then the rest of that day and the following day, we, we just had a, this thing was between us, and uh, we're fine now. But it just, those things take a while to, to work through, and it, it just wasn't very pleasant. Now, given the end of that verse 21, does that mean that I should give up on my salvation? Well, thank God, no. Because it, and it, but it certainly seems hard to reconcile what that says with God's promise to forgive our sins if we ask him to. Now the, the Greek word for do, so when it says, if you, um, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Greek word there is prasso, apparently. And prasso means to perform repeatedly or habitually. So this means if we are living a life of constant, um, impenitent sin, not coming to God asking for forgiveness, constantly living in sin, then we will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. And why is that? Well, because if our lives are constantly characterised by these sins in a way that they were before we were saved and they continue to characterise our lives completely um, in, in that way, then how could we possibly say that we are really born again? We're not, it's easy to say that you're born again, but we're expected to change our lives. We're not justified by just a profession of faith, we're justified by the possession of faith. Things are supposed to change as they work through us. And our faith is demonstrated by the working of the Holy Spirit. And this is a hard teaching, I think, and, um, and I'm not trying to question my, my own or anybody else's salvation, but I think it, it, it has real um, meaning for our lives, and we're, we're going to look at that. Because I think it's, it's easy for us, we, what we don't want to do is say that we're saved, and yet there's no outward manifestation of our salvation at all. And Christ said in Matthew chapter 7 that many will say, Lord, Lord, but he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And and it also says in that passage in Matthew 7 that it is by our fruit that we are known as his followers. Now, the list of works of the flesh that we've looked at are forgivable, but um, obviously we must bring them to Jesus and, and repent of those sins. And when we're born again, the good news is we are born of the Spirit. We are a changed person. But there is still and will always be in our lives an ongoing battle, that battle of the spiritual versus our fleshly desires. Okay, that's the depressing, that's all works of the flesh. So what, are, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Um, I looked up on Wikipedia, and actually it's quite a good definition on Wikipedia. I don't know who did it, but it was very biblical. Wikipedia says the fruit of the Spirit is the attributes of a person or community living in accordance with the Holy Spirit. The attributes of a person or community living in accordance with the Holy Spirit. 
So let's, let's read verses 22 to 24 again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against all such things there is no law, of course. So some of, some of those fruits are quite difficult to define, but I think we know them when we see them and when we experience them. I mean, love, that, that unselfish, uh, caring, tender behaviour that we like to receive and that is enjoyable to share with those that we love. Joy, not necessarily happiness per se, uh, but perhaps the, the assurance of the belief that we have uh, and everything that comes from that. C.S. Lewis said that the difference between joy and pleasure is that joy is never in our power, but pleasure often is. So joy doesn't preclude grieving or pain or, or, or affliction in our lives as we know it. Life is tough and continues to be tough even after we're saved. But in all things we can of course hold on to the precious salvation that we have. So what else? Peace. The deep peace that comes from our relationship with Christ. I don't know if, uh, if you just think of those times when you've had your eyes closed or you've been in a prayer or you've been at church and you feel the Holy Spirit with you, you feel connected to Christ and you just do have that sense of peace that whatever is going on in the rest of your lives you know that you have something to cling to, that rock of salvation and it's a wonderful thing. Patience the ability to have a long fuse. And interestingly, three times in Psalms, in Psalm 86 and 103 and 145, it says the same thing when it's talking about God. It says that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Perhaps I should read those again. Um, and then also kindness, goodness, gentleness. These are harder to pin down, but isn't it great when you see somebody who demonstrates those attributes um, and, uh, and you want to be around them. It's a very attractive, very attractive. Somebody who's kind and, and is good and gentle. You know, you, and wouldn't it be great to be described as somebody who had those attributes? Self-control, the ability to recognise your weaknesses, perhaps the um, potential dangers and traps, and act on them before they become uh, something um, that you wish they hadn't. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't be emotional. Um, for example, Jesus got very emotional, very angry when he was overturning the temple, uh, overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple. But it's understanding when and how to display the right kind of anger. Um, and the keen eye of you uh, amongst us will, will notice I missed out faithfulness, which I'll, I'm coming back to. So before I move on and, and talk in a bit more detail about faithfulness, which um, as a fruit that we should evidence, just consider the, the, the whole list of, of fruit again. These are some of the most um, beautiful characteristics of God himself. Now, these are characteristics he wants for us and, and that we would have better lives if we could display them. And that shouldn't be a surprise at all because these are fruits of the Spirit. And if they're fruit of the Spirit, well, the Holy Spirit himself is God. So it's no surprise that these are characteristics of God himself. And these are the characteristics that God delights in and wants us to share. And it's for us to um, look upon them as a priority for our lives. Now, we're not all granted the gifts of the Spirit, but we are all expected to strive to evidence the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. 
So let's look at faithfulness. So what is faithfulness? There's a useful website called blueletterbible.org that defines the Greek, uh, of, of, uh, the Greek Bible. And the Greek word for faithfulness is the Greek word pistis. And, and it means somebody who is trusty or people who show, show themselves as being very faithful in the transaction of business, or being able to follow through and execute on commands they are given, people who can discharge their duties with faithfulness, those who also who are persuaded, believing, um, and trusting. And you can see how that would apply to us, um, believing, confiding, um, and being persuaded uh, and trusting you know, the word of God. So what does this actually mean then for our lives and the way we behave day to day? And I thought, well, faithfulness, perhaps, you know, are, are three main areas. Firstly, you should mark our um, relationship with other people in, in a way that, that means that they can rely on us, that they can trust us to follow through on the things we say we're going to follow through, that we won't naturally or quickly resort to some of the selfish, envious behaviours uh, we considered earlier. Faithfulness perhaps should um, also mark our relationship with the church in the way perhaps we volunteer for things and carry them out with diligence and reliability, like, like many of you do. Um, perhaps how we allocate our finances in our lives and how we give generously back to God that small portion of what he's so generously given us. And, and also faithfulness, I think, should mark our relationship with God. And sanctification involves a lifetime of work and that's why I think we're getting to here you know we're, we're told to take our sanctification uh, our, our walk after salvation um, very seriously and, and to work, up, work it out with fear and trembling you know that's that diligent faithful pursuit uh, attempting to live a more righteous life now salvation is monogistic it's something that one person does meaning only one thing contributes to our salvation and that's uh, Christ alone. And it has nothing to do with us or anything that we do. But sanctification it, it's, is synergistic. It requires the Holy Spirit and it also requires us to do things as well. It takes two to tango. And it's not just listening to the, the word, it's not just listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's striving to act upon it. It's a cooperative process. In verse 25, I really love um, the way that's written. Well, certainly in, in my version it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step by the Spirit. I thought, keep in step with the Spirit. That's really cool because, I don't know, sometimes, I don't know whether you've tried walking in step. Uh, sometimes I... I um, um, used to walk behind my children or behind my dad uh, in a funny way and try and sort of literally sort of be very, very close and follow, you know, literally behind their footsteps. And I don't know whether you've ever tried walking close uh, in somebody's footsteps like that. It's very difficult. You have to pay attention to what they're doing. If you're walking in step, you have to pay attention and concentrate not only whether they're going faster or slower, but whether they're going to the left or the right. And in reflecting on this passage, I've actually found it very challenging this week. And I've asked myself, well, what does it mean in my life then if I was to be called faithful to God? And what does it mean to you, I wonder? For me, I think 
it's probably um, a number of things, and I'm still working on these things. I think it's listening more to that still small voice that sometimes we're prompted to do things. Often I know, I think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I did X, Y, Z? And then often I don't do X, Y, Z. I just get busy again or think of a reason why I can't. Um, and Or maybe it's correcting some of those small behaviours that um, perhaps in that example with my son, little actions or words at the start of a conversation or, or an event that then tumble into something that I didn't necessarily intend to happen. But I think most of all, it's, it's, for me, it's to make a more conscious effort to walk with the Holy Spirit day by day. And, it, and it's hard to define precisely, but I think it's to do with me striving more, um, being a bit more conscious about the things I do, um, and trying a little harder to do things uh, in a way every day that I know will please God more. Um, and I think that if I work on these small things, then probably some of the bigger things will sort themselves out um, as well. So, as we leave this place, I ask that you also think about how God might want you to be more faithful to him. And like Paul in Philippians 3.14, uh, he says that he's, he wants to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he was already saved by this point, but he was still pressing on towards that goal in an active, conscious way. And he says, let those of us who are mature in this way and if any of you think likewise, otherwise God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We have salvation. So let's be true to that salvation and work on our sanctification. So we're assured that God gave us his one and only son, that we should have eternal life. We can be assured of that. He is our rock. And we should be grateful to him for that. But we should also strive to demonstrate that and be faithful to him each and every day. Amen.